Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a little thing like a brain tumor derail me. When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired, I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being grounded and centered. It's a mecca for cycling, for sure. Struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold chills. And it's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful. Hey everybody, welcome back. I hope you've had a great week since the last time that we got together. This is part two of my talk with Chris Sullivan, who is a philosopher, a photographer, writer, naturalist, and one of my dearest friends. You're really gonna get to listen to his scientific mind at work in this episode as we talk about writing and more specifically journaling and the various methods that he employs in recording his thoughts. We're also going to talk about his approach to photography, which is, what else? Experimental and sciency. We're also going to cover raising monarchs and the devastating effects on them from the parasite that's commonly referred to as EO, and how the monarch's seemingly imminent demise is a bigger message to us humans about the impacts that we are placing on the environment which put our own survival as a species in danger. And then we get into some fun stuff like Smurf eggs and a message from God that arrives on the side of a box of Triscuits. You never know where divine messages will come from. And before we head into this episode, I just want to give you an update on my knee, which has made a cameo in several episodes since March when I managed to tear the meniscus in the most boring way possible. You know, I've got all of these adventure stories, some of which I've shared, some of which I haven't. They range from like rappelling up a cliff on nothing more than a chain of ropes and belts and neckties to almost drowning in the middle of the ocean while kayaking when my group and I got ambushed by a freak storm to inadvertently walking up on a bear while hiking. And of all of this stuff, I get injured while walking upstairs. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but it's been a long time coming, seeing as I got injured in March, and it is now the beginning of August. But I finally had laparoscopic surgery, and I'm hobbling around. I'm not going to be walking down any runways anytime soon. It is a terrible, lurchy walk. <laughs> but I'm really glad that the... Um, that the surgery is over and it wasn't nearly as impactful as I thought it was going to be. So I'm really looking forward to physical therapy and a full recovery because 2022 has been kind of a sideline year. It's kind of like, you know, over the last several years, everybody's like, you know, good riddance to whatever year that is. Or, you know, I mean, if you talk about 2020, 2020 impacted everybody. And we were hoping 2021 would get better. And it did in some ways, and it didn't in other ways. And this year's theme 
for my life personally has been getting sidelined. I was super sick in January. I had some sort of terrible upper respiratory infection. And then I ended up in the hospital for an intestinal issue in February. So I was literally sick from January all the way to the end of February. I had one good day this year. It was like the end of February, I think was like a Friday. So I was recovering Saturday and Sunday. I was feeling mediocre on that Monday. And Tuesday, I felt great. So that had to have been like March 2nd, I think. I don't have a calendar in front of me, but let's just go with that. And on the 3rd, I'm walking up these steps and I tear my meniscus. I've literally all year long have had one good day where I felt perfect and hopeful and like things were going to work out for me. So I am knocking on wood because I'm back at that place again. This is my March 2nd again. I'm feeling really hopeful. And so it's been a year where I've just been sidelined. So it's just really super frustrating because I've had to say no to invitations to hike. I had to say no to snorkeling with some friends, bike rides, invitations to go roller skating, kayaking, stand up paddle boarding. It's just all been, you know, no, I can't. My knee is just not going to have it. But that's resulted also in a year of introspection and growth and really like finding greater comfort within myself. So it hasn't been a bad year in that regard. And I guess, you know, like they say, one door closes and another one opens. And my door was the door of introspection. (laughs) I've had two great nurses. My daughter, Sophie, is amazing. And I'm not just saying that. I mean, like, she makes sure that I have ice and pillows for my knee. She keeps me hydrated and fed. And I'm sure (laughs) that it's probably because it's as much in her best interest to get me healthy and independent again as it is for me. But I seriously appreciate the heck out of her. And my other nurse has been the love of my life, my kitty cat Echo. I just, I, it's crazy how much I love this cat. And if you haven't been on my social media pages lately, hop on there to take a look at the therapy kitty at work. I couldn't have asked for a better recovery team, but I am totally ready to move forward and add many more chapters in my book of adventures. In the meantime, please grab a cuppa and join Chris Sullivan and I in this full and fascinating episode. Enjoy. You have a book out that's called Spirit at Bear Lodge, which is for middle school girls. And I believe you have another book out as well. I have not been able to get a publisher interested in either of those books. You can find Spirit at Bear Lodge on Amazon. You can download the text, but I have not been published. No. Are you still writing? Yeah, I write every day, but those two books were fiction projects that I headed into with some ideas, and I worked on them both. Uh, I like the second book a whole lot better than the first book, but I was never able to get either a publisher or even an agent interested in them. In fact, one of my responses to that, I, I kind of soured on publication. 
uh, you know, it's complex to do that because I don't want to, I say, poo-poo the whole thing because I couldn't do it. But no, there are problems with publication. Uh, like one person in 50 can find an agent willing to take them on. The supply of books is vast. The, the numbers in that get accepted are vanishingly small. Uh, one of my responses was to say, well, I love to write. One of the agents said to me, who's one to talk to me, said, to be a successful writer, you have to market 90% of the time and write 10% of the time. And I didn't want to do that. And if that's what I have to do to be a successful writer, then I'm not going to be a successful writer. I don't want to market. Um, uh, you know, at seven years old, it's easy enough to say that. If I were 22 and writing, it would know, be reasonable to say, well, make your choices here. Yeah, how serious a writer are you? But I, like I said, I did not, I want to write. I don't want to, to market. I don't want to fiddle around with the whole publication thing anymore. And one of my responses was to build myself a website where I get to write and publish whatever I want. If you don't like it, you can click out of there and go somewhere else. And that's fine with me, too. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I write every day. I think there's a lot of value in writing daily, whether it's a journal, whether it's short stories, whether it's, um, well, you've seen some of my posts. They're very lengthy and I've had friends write me. I loved what you wrote, but this is probably not the right platform. And I'm okay. Well, don't read it. (laughs) So, you know, I love to write. I used to have a column at one time in a local magazine. I've won awards for my writing. I also am not published. And I could self-publish if I wanted to. That's got its own set of drawbacks as well. So mm-hmm. I just, you know, I like to write. I keep threatening to put all of my short stories together. I've got fiction pieces. I've got nonfiction pieces. But it is really hard to find an agent. It is really hard to find a publisher. It's just an oversaturated, notoriously, uh, tragically, really difficult industry to get into. And I think that's probably true of any creative industry where people want to hem the product in something that was created from inspiration and now you've got all these rules that go along with it and that kind of (laughs) that kind of kills that creativity so why do you write why do i write because i'm compelled to i just have to get it out i have so many thoughts going through my brain and stories and i think it's a way for me to connect in a tangible way to the world around me And one of the things that I really do love about writing and putting things out just for my friends is when it makes them smile or they write me back that they can relate to what I've said because it makes me realize that people are seeing the same things that I am. It grounds me a little bit and it connects me with other people who are seeing the same things in the world and you know, oh, yeah, that happened to me. And that is pretty funny, you know, because I do tend to see things in a very humorous light. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another reason is just that connection. But I am compelled to write, it just has to get out of my head. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep, I hear you. I've been keeping a daily journal now for 56 years. Wow. Most of it is not worth reading. (laughs) Some of it is. I enjoy it. So for me to write is most, it's just what I do. 
I bet a lot of it is worth reading. Did you happen to read my story about the journal that I found? The journal? It's not ringing bells. Did you make it available somewhere? Um, yeah, on Facebook. I was working in automotive for a while. I was not in the parts department, but that's where all of the seating was, you know, so people would forget all kinds of things. And there was no name associated with 95% of the items that were left behind. So they would all go in a drawer. Books, magazines, scarves, umbrellas, sunglasses, you name it. Um, things that people forgot with the hopes, of course, that they would remember and come back. So somebody decided the stuff's been in there forever. Nobody's going to come and claim it. It should go in the trash. And the only thing I fished out of there was this journal. Hmm. And I thought it's probably going to have some nonsense in there. It's somebody's school journal or something. There's going to be algebraic equations or, you know, homework notes or whatever. It was a few days before I got to read it. And it was a man's journal. I don't know who it belonged to. It had been forgotten at least 10 months earlier. I had only been working there for about four months at the time. I looked all over for a name, couldn't find a name. And this guy was very organized. So this is a serious tragedy that he lost this journal. He was very organized. And he wrote about having to clean out his garage because he was going to put a shelving system in there. This shelving system was specifically for all of his journals. And he had journals for diet and exercise. He had a journal for his work, and he was certainly an engineer. He worked on some top priority projects for aerospace. So he had a journal for those sorts of things. But then within the work that he was doing, he would come up with thoughts about other things that he wanted to do that were connected to his main work, but were not what he was supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. So he had journals for that. He had journals for how his marriage was going. He had journals for somebody with a significant illness in the family, tracking the medical, the anecdotes that had been shared about, you know, well, here's what my doctor told me that we should do, or this is unconventional medicine, but it will probably work type of thing. He had a journal for writing implements. And that all sounds very boring. There was additional stuff in there that I don't want to out publicly because I don't want to embarrass anybody. So was this a journal of journals? This was a journal of a lot of different things, but there were huge sections of it that explained what he wanted to do with his journals and what the journals were and how he wanted to organize them and categorize them. Uh, you know, everything had to do with organizing and categorizing and having individual places for his thoughts and having the individual writing implements for these various journals. I, I was astounded. It was probably the most fascinating read that I've ever had the opportunity to check out. And I am very, very, I mean, it, it kind of breaks my heart that he lost this journal. Mm-hmm. It's just a hole in his, you know, I'm sure that this is something that he wrote about in another journal, you know, like maybe a journal of loss. And I know this was a significant loss for him. I don't remember seeing your article about that. And I read pretty much everything you put up on Facebook. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't see that one. I'll find it and tag you on it so that you can read it. It, it was it was pretty interesting. But yeah, you know, journaling is one of those things that I think is really important. Um, I used to journal. I journaled a lot when I was younger. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, I lived in a household where people like to go through drawers and they found my journal and it had some very private things in there. And that resulted in a lot of drama. I felt very violated because that was my journal. Those were my thoughts, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, it stopped me from journaling Oof. forever. That was many decades ago. I mean, I was I was in my late teens at the time. I've tried to start it up again because I know that it is a really helpful practice. Mm-hmm. It's grounding. It also inspires new ideas. It helps you think through various issues. It's a great practice, but I just can't. I probably will do it for one night um, a couple of times a year, and then I just give up. <laughs> hmm. Well, that's probably my main kind of writing these days is journals. One of the funnest things about journals is that there are no rules. Pretty much the only rule really is dating entries. But I have a what I call a one-liner. It's a traditional 365-page journal, and each day I write one line. So if you turn to April 20, you'll see a line that is for 1992, and the next line is for 93, and the next line is for 94. And I've filled up one of those books where I've got, you know, I can turn to a single page and I can see a line written every day on the same day of the calendar year, uh, appearing on one page. I have a journal that's a, a gratitude journal where I write something briefly that I'm thankful for. I have a journal in which words are prohibited. You know, anything but words you know, work on a page. I have a, 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 my main journal is the one I've, I've kept daily for so long now. A uh, journal for reading completions. I have a, a journal that I call my tens journal. On each page, I write down a list of ten things. Ten comedians who make me laugh. Ten encounters with the color red this year. Ten dogs in my life. Ten places I want to visit. Ten places I never want to visit. It's just... <laughs> They're correlated with each other. So it's not just random, ten random things. They actually have a theme associated with them. Well, the title of the page collects them all. So ten, ten things I've seen through glass. Ten people I've kissed. Ten hotels I've stayed in. So yeah, each list of 10 are related to one another, but they are they're all different, of course. And what's the purpose of listing 10 things for you? Well, I had a big fat 400 page journal and I wondered, boy, can I fill it up with 400 lists of 10? And I did. It's, it's just, a, I found it to be fun exploration. And there's a special kind of list keeping that is really fun. And that is lists of 100. A list of 100 things seems long. Like you say, a list of 100 things I remember from 1999. A list of 100 things for which I have to be forgiven. A list of 100 bridges. And you start on this list and you work your way through. And the recommendation for this kind of journal keeping is that you do it in a single sitting. Oh, 
And you wear, you kind of gets harder after 50 or 60 things. And then suddenly at about 80, some unexpected things pop in there. Like, oh, how in the world did I not think of that? I'll, I'll send you some possible lists of 100 things you can do. And that's uh, one of my favorite kind of journal keepings. Yeah. But I don't do it more than two or three times a year. <laughs> so, yeah, journals are fabulous. And they're mostly for me, they're about exploration. And they're uh, ways for figuring out what I feel about something. Uh, they're wonderful places to do what Lincoln used to call hot letters. He'd say, you write a hot letter and you throw it away. So I, a lot of times I'll be angry about something. I'll take it to my journal and write it out without any limitations on what I can say, because nobody's going to read it here. Nobody's going to hear it. Mm -hmm. I say whatever I want, and I, I learn I know better about what I felt for having done that. And do you go back and read these and see the growth from, say, something that you wrote in 1980, 1990? Yeah, I do go back and read. Sometimes it's embarrassing. <laughs> Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's amusing to see myself muddling over the same old things here 30 years later. Uh -huh. it's, a, it's a great resource I've provided to myself. Yeah. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing to do. I don't know, maybe I can get into um, starting a journal again. You know, I really enjoyed it at the time. I just thought it was the greatest thing, but uh, we'll see. And I do enjoy and appreciate reading journals, uh, diaries that have been published. There's so much interesting material in them where you get to know about an important person in the past, maybe Lincoln's diary mm -hmm. or somebody else's diary that's not around anymore and the insights that that provides. You know, there's a lot of letters that have been not super recently, but maybe like in the last 20 years or so that were published of Bruce Lee's diaries and just the discipline and thinking. And they're really helpful, you know, when people are putting their deepest, most philosophical thoughts down on paper. I think it's really helpful. And so not that my journals will be all that interesting, but there are some really good things that come out of these published diaries. Yep, there's been a book on the New York Times bestseller list forever now. Matthew McConaughey mm -hmm. put together a book that's mostly his journals over many years. I have not read it, but I'm surprised it's been one of the bestsellers for several years now, I think. Yeah. But I, it's easy for me to keep writing because it's just for myself, mostly. Right. I don't make judgments about it. It doesn't matter to me if when I die, but it just recycles all this crap. It's a very free situation for me. It is grounding, that book. It's called Green Lights. Yes. Matthew McConaughey's book. I'll have to check it out. One of the things that you've done is turn your creative passions towards photography. And I personally think that you are a true talent at that. Thank you. Thank you. You really are. And where did you get your passion for photography? You have some really amazing subject matter, like decomposing food. And that sounds terrible, but they are the most spectacular photos I've ever seen. Well, it, I probably started taking pictures when I was eight years old. So it's another one of those regular things I've done forever. It is good for me because it's an altogether different kind of mentation than I normally do. 
I spend most of my time reading and writing and all that's verbal, but photography is altogether a different kind of cognition or processing. And I most of my picture taking until about the 1990s was what most people do, which is capturing what's going on around me and recording for my memory. But it was not really in until I started going to a photographer's group at the art center near my house, that I really started to feel the creative power that I had available to me with my camera. So yeah, my camera work is similar to some of my other investigations. I have some principles around taking pictures that are like my intellectual work. Um, for example, one of my standards or principles for taking pictures is to look for things that I can't see. Another is take pictures of things other people don't think it's worth taking pictures of, like the decomposing food. I like to take pictures of desiccating flowers. Most people like to take pictures of fresh flowers, but for me, there are patterns and structures and textures that can only be seen in desiccating flowers. Some of those are available on my website. I love to take pictures of children. And there's so much freshness there. It reminds me to keep up my own freshness. Mm -hmm. Another principle I have is to look at small things or look down, look at your own feet. The camera resensitizes me to the world around me. I had a strange experience once. I was sitting in a restaurant waiting for my friend Leroy, and I had my camera with me. And I was just fiddling around with it and taking pictures of things. And I took a picture of a, a big video game box. So it's seven feet tall and had a footprint of about four feet and a big screen and joysticks and all. But it had a, one big side that was red. This is the whole side of it. I took a picture of it, and I looked at the picture, and I could see across the face of it what looked a little bit like a shadow it was a different color and i looked at the real thing with my eyes i couldn't see it but there it was in the picture and one of the things that a human eye does is get rid of extraneous information and this is an example of it i could not see with my eye this bar or shadow that was a, a big strip across the side of this game box so I started to look at the game box for a minute or two. It's a long time to look at something, but as I stared at it, that strip, that shadow emerged, and I could see it with my own eyes, and I didn't need the camera to see it. But if I blinked, I couldn't see it anymore. The lesson for me was that most things that are going on around me, I don't see. And this uh, is a wonderful example of something that I saw only because the camera prompted me to look really hard. And so I'm pretty sure that as I move through my day, I don't see most of what's going on around me. Mm -hmm. And my study in photography is prompting me to slow down and, and look and start seeing more of what's around me. So it's more than just taking pictures for me. It's uh, wrapped up in my ex exploration, my own experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like stopping to smell the flowers. And I, I think... Most of us, the world is so busy and we're always thinking ahead that having that mindfulness, that sense of presentism and slowing down to have a good look at your surroundings 
just doesn't happen. We probably collectively all just move past things that are there and just never even notice them at all. Yeah, uh, that's one kind of things being so familiar. But I'm more interested in the information that my mind or my brain intentionally blocks. I'm going to try to get through some of those blocks. Uh, it's an example. If, if you have um, like tiles in your bathroom that are square and there's grout between the tiles, if you look at one intersection, the other intersections that you can see in the periphery of your eyes are darker. And if you hop over to that intersection, that suddenly is light and the other intersections are darker. And that's your brain somehow correcting for what should be. A similar sort of illusion where if you have a chessboard pattern and the squares are small, and on one spot of this chessboard pattern, there's a white circle where it isn't there. And there's no pattern at all. It's just a white spot. If you hold this in front of your eyes, close one eye and move it away, there comes a point where that white spot lands on the center of your eyeball that, that doesn't have vision, actually, because that's where all the nerves from the retina come together and go back to the brain. If you move this chest pattern out to where that white circle is on that spot, your brain takes over and fills it in with a chest pattern. It says, okay, that doesn't look right. I'm going to correct it. And it does. And you have no control over it. Your brain just takes over on an unconscious level and forces you to see something that's not there. And I'm sure that happens to me all day long. And I don't, I want to see what's there. That, that's different from failing to stop and smell the roses. Mm -hmm. You stop and smell the roses, it's always going to smell like that. But your brain blocks experience. And I don't, I don't want my brain to do that. Yeah, it's very experimental what you're doing. Uh, it's another one of those things that I'm intensely interested in that pretty much nobody else is. <laughs> except maybe other photographers. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think mm -hmm. that's cool. Is there a particular subject matter that you prefer to take photos of? Whatever the subject, I typically go for sharp focus and hard contrast and strong colors. But other, you've, you've seen pictures of my fireworks, I think. Yes, the fireworks are amazing. I love those. They are. And I like to take pictures of children. I like to take pictures of people in settings. I have one picture I took at the Louvre in Paris of somebody in front of the Mona Lisa. But the picture shows her with her back to the Mona Lisa. And she's holding up the phone to take a selfie. So that the photograph I took had a person. I could see her in her phone with her picture mm -hmm. there and the Mona Lisa there. Mm -hmm. And in my picture, there was her phone, her face, and the Mona Lisa in the background. That's a fascinating situation for me. Yeah, that's cool. I took a picture one time. I was on a film set, and the director of photography, the DP, the cinematographer, was looking through the lens to decipher whether he had the shot framed the way that he wanted. And I took a picture through the front of the camera, which has this really interesting layered effect. Like they blurred him out a little bit, but rearranged his face and almost has this sense of endless layers. 
if separated portions of his face are um, kind of stacked up and it's, it's a pretty mm. cool shot. I, mm. that stuff is, yeah, it's always fun to take pictures like that. Uh, send, send it to me. I'd like to see it. Okay. Okay. I will. Um, I know you have some pictures too, that are really beautiful of monarch butterflies and you were going out and trying to encourage their growth. And I, I think you were protecting the eggs because there was a parasite that was destroying them and you were trying to control for that. Are you still raising monarchs? This summer so far, I have raised only four. Three summers ago, I had a spectacular year. My pattern is to find the eggs on the milkweed in the wild and put the plant into a specialized vase for this purpose and then put the vase inside of a net cage. That summer, I raised and released 187 monarchs. Wow. And that was fabulous. But the subsequent summers were awful. I just could not get rid of this parasite that lives only in the guts of monarch butterflies. It has a cycle of getting into monarchs and living there until the monarch attempts to emerge from the chrysalis and it is deformed or weak or uh, just dead. And the parasite then produces innumerable little spores that are little diamond-shaped things, and they light on the milkweed and wait for the next monarch. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had a mortality rate that was much higher than I was going to accept in those two subsequent years. So this year, I thought they were better off if I just left them. E-O. It has a longer Latin name, but if you Google monarch parasite, up it'll pop, because it's pretty much the only one. Hmm. So, you know, last week, monarchs were moved to the endangered species list. They're two steps away from becoming extinct. Yep. And there's a 70% decline in these butterflies in Mexico, about 95% decline in California, which is just devastating. And a lot of people have been, when we talk about this, it's like, you know, do you think it's the environment? Do you think it's pollution? Do you think it's the herbicides? Do you think it's the clear cutting? Is it the drought? I think it's all of these things. And I wonder if this parasite is greatly responsible because it sounds terrible what's happening over in, you know, your netting that you have. I haven't seen the numbers, and I'm sure the research is out there, but I would expect that climate change and the drought and loss of habitat are the big ones. Uh, one of the ways that species, especially butterflies, I think, are destroyed by climate change is that the higher temperature means that plants, in many cases, develop more quickly. And there's this vast interdependent system of the insects and the plants throughout North America that have their own rhythms and that the butterflies, in some cases, may be actuated by light. And the plants are more often actuated by temperature. So if the temperature starts changing, the actuation patterns for butterflies starts mismatching. They either arrive too early or too late for the plants they need. And monarchs need only a single plant, milkweed. And if milkweeds have different timing now, or they are slowly migrating northward to stay closer to the climate they like, 
monarchs might have different timing for different reasons, and they fall out of sync with one another. And that's one of the less well-known reasons for why they are failing. That makes sense. But I started doing it because I sincerely thought that I could make a difference. If you monitor or find yourself in milkweed patches a lot, most people don't. You'll find if you study the leaves that sometimes there is a, a little horseshoe-shaped blemish on a leaf. And that is where a monarch has emerged from its egg. Because from its egg, it eats whatever it can reach around its egg. And it creates these little tiny horseshoe-shaped blemishes that are a trademark of a monarch coming out of its egg. And if you look for live caterpillars on that same milkweed plant, I found that the, the number of caterpillars to those blemishes is about 1 to 20, which means that 19 out of 20 monarchs that hatch from their egg don't even become caterpillars for whatever reason. I assume this mostly predators, wasps or spiders in particular. So I thought that if I would bring in these plants and make sure that there were no wasps or spiders around them, I would be increasing the success rate by maybe a fact of 20. And that first year, that may have been true. But I like I say, the last two years were so bad, I'd gone that is probably hurting the population more than I was helping them. So it is depressing to me that uh, the milkweed plants that I have around my house, and I probably have 200 milkweed plants within a three or four minute walking distance of my house. I have seen almost no monarch eggs. And those four that I have are the four I've ever found this year. And that is easily a 95 or 98% diminishment of monarchs in my neighborhood. So it's a big loss, I think. Yeah, I think so too. It's devastating. Even if monarchs go away and we never see one again, because there never will be monarchs again if they die out, um, it is just a little indicator of what's happening to the environment in general. It's like canaries in the mine. You see the monarchs dying or disappearing, but that's only an indicator of larger threats to humanity. You know, I, I am not at all concerned about the earth. The earth will take care of itself, but as humans are eliminating our own environment to live, and it will be humans next after the monarchs. That uh, may or may not be a big loss, uh, but we'll see. So it's not just the spotted owls or the marmosets or the monarchs who are disappearing. As you know, it's uh, indicators of more systemic losses. Right. You know, we just had a group of musicians bringing awareness. They're from the South Pacific Islands. And they were they're talking about the fact that a lot of these islands in the South Pacific will probably be underwater in the next 20 years or so. And that's going to be a huge loss for the planet. So there's a lot that's going on. And I was just talking to my friend Laura about the environment and that it's easy to choose to just not do anything about it because it seems like it's so enormous that the little bit that we do would be inconsequential. But I think if more people paid attention to these clues that the environment is giving us, the number of animals that we're seeing go towards extinction or completely become extinct. Those are all clues. And there are things that we can each do, just little things that 
if enough people did them, it would make a difference in the environment. Yeah, it would. There are Asian states in the South Pacific that are actually moving their populations because they know their islands are going to be gone. Tuovo, I think, is one of those little island nations. It's in the United Nations, but in X number of decades, that land is gone. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you. That, you know, we can't prompt very many people to do what needs to be done, but we can do what we can on our own and talk to people about it. I, for example, I think the most important thing people can do to resist climate change is to stop eating meat because that's the cause of the deforestation in the Amazon. It is so much more expensive to produce a pound of beef than it is a pound of tofu. It's a revolutionary act. Stop eating meat. Mm -hmm. It is, yeah. Sophie is 99% vegetarian. I'm probably about 85%. I feel better when I eat vegetarian. It's a lot of fun to cook it. I just picked a bunch of eggplants from the backyard again. So you have to figure out what to do with it. We like to make pulled pork sandwiches. I mean, they're, you know, made with eggplant instead of pork. So this time around, I got to figure out something else to make with them. But it's fun to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's fun to get creative. It's another creative outlet. So Well, I've got one more question because I know we've been talking for a really long time and you've got these lists on your website. Did you actually call the M&M's company and ask them if blue M&M's were Smurf eggs or Smurf poop? I did. (laughs) It's one of those situations where the customer service person doesn't say, you're an idiot, hang up. They have to play it straight. And they assured me that they were not Smurf eggs. They sent me some free samples. All blue? <laughs> uh, no, no blue. I'm, I'm, I'm still not reconciled with blue myself, but there it is. Um, yeah, I, uh, I have to tell you the message I received on the side of a Triscuit package that was so important oh. to me. About how important it is to oh, shake things up. Oh, what was that? <laughs> I don't know if it's still there or not, but on the side of Triscuit packages or probably lots of cracker packages, there's a little message that says, contents may have settled in shipping. Rest assured that you have your 10 ounces of Triscuits in this box. And I took a general message from that. That is, the little essay I wrote about that said, God doesn't speak to me. But he did or she did on the side of this Triscuit package. And it told me what was important for me to do in my life. And that was to shake up the box. So the very least you can do in your life is to fill the box you came in. So I have ever since reminded myself, shake up the box. Shake up other people's boxes. <laughs> I have two little examples of that. I was reading My Antonia with my mother. Uh, and I checked out two copies of My Antonia from the library and gave one to my mother. And we read it simultaneously. I got the checkout desk. And this is when checkout desks still had people at them. And I handed her these two copies of the book. And I said, I'm glad you had two copies of it because I need to read it twice. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm sure that. The person behind the desk looked at me and thought, oh, my God, I need to find different work. <laughs> oh, or another time I was uh, downtown in a parking lot. I had found a crow, which is not a small bird. It was lying in the, in the parking lot, but it had been stunned. It had hit another car. So I picked it up and put it in my car. It was not too hot to do that. And let it recover. And when I came back, I was going to release it. 
Well, it had come all the way back to being wide awake and alert again in the hour or so it was in my car. So I was driving out of the parking lot, and there was somebody collecting a fee for parking there. And I rolled down my window and handed him my ticket. And while he was doing that, this crow started flapping around inside of the car and finally flew out the window. And I looked at the ticket taker, and I said, I hate it when that happens. And... (laughs) Again, this guy looked at me and thought, oh, my God, I I hate working with the public. (laughs) But it's a larger mission I have, and that is to shake things up. Nothing else. Fill the box you came in, for Christ's sake. Yeah, don't settle during the travel, right? Right. Don't settle in transit. (laughs) That was so funny and so awesome. Stay on the lookout for those divine messages. They are everywhere and where you least expect them. And Chris, please send your blue M&Ms my way. I love them. (laughs) As always, I will post links to everything that we talked about in the show notes. Don't forget to send me your questions and suggestions. I do read every one of them, even if I don't have the opportunity to respond to them all. Please be sure to rate this episode. It only takes seconds, but your rating does move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com, all at The Queen Trail Podcast. That's T H E Q U A I N T R E L E Podcast. I am Syl Annan, the Queen Trell, and until next time, I wish you passion, grace, adventure, a good shakeup, elegance, and beauty.